0: I, I wasn't sure but I was trying to channel my inner Matt in saying like well you know it's not just the chef show it's
1: time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and business for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by Tenth Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. You can find out about joining their cloud services team at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Tenth Magnitude. The episode this episode is also brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 70 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, and AWS, so that dev and ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a free 14-day trial at ArrestedDevOps.com Datadog. So I did have the opportunity uh, recently to sit down and talk to Arthur Malton and Michael Getz around the topic of test-driven infrastructure. When we're writing Infracode, testing is really critical, but we wanted to talk about how you actually go about implementing these tests, and who better to do that than talking to some of the experts in the field, Arthur and Michael. So I'm really excited to have a couple of great guests to talk with me about the idea of test-driven infrastructure. And a little uh, pre-warning, I guess we're probably going to talk a little Chef-specific because my guests and I n- know Chef better than than some of the other tooling. But these ideas should still apply to pretty much whatever you are applying for your configuration management. And so uh, first, I'd like to introduce our first guest, who is Arthur Maltzen. So Arthur. Tell our audience a little about yourself and your background with uh, test-driven infrastructure.
2: I am uh, Arthur Maltzen. I'm a software developer at Ontario Teachers. Uh, I've been doing software development for about eight years now. Started doing DevOps full-time here at Teachers. Uh, I also gave a talk on test-driven infrastructure at DevOps. Uh, So maybe that's why I'm here. Um, So, yeah, really, uh, I've been doing software development. I kind of take the software development.
1: Infrastructure side. Also joining us is Michael Getz. So, Michael, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, Hi. Yeah, thanks. Uh, My name is Michael
0: Goetz. Uh, I'm the manager of the Solutions Engineering Group at Chef. Uh, That is our consultants that go out and help people with um, their daily uses of Chef and other automation and infrastructure as code activities. Um, My background is uh, kind of an old school release engineer. so, I've got a lot of personal um, angst around properly validated infrastructure and application changes going out into production. Um, so, uh, happy to kind of chime in on this conversation.
1: Great. So we talked about this a little bit uh in our Infrastructure as Code episode, but I want to which we'll have a link to in the show notes and you can listen to it at arrestdevops.com/infrastructure-as-code. But before we get into the details on how to really do your test-driven infrastructure, let's talk a little bit about why you should bother testing your infra code in the first place.
2: It's really around getting that software, whether it's infrastructure as code or it's the software that you're releasing, um, giving you that confidence that when you do make those changes, it's going to work the way you expect it to. I, I think that's really the, the value.
0: I think when you talk about uh, test. Uh, testing infrastructure and the value behind it I think you really just need to understand what it is that you're you're trying to test right because if you think about you' just testing in general you have the signal in right which is did I t- did is the thing doing what I told it to do um, you have the signal processing which is your configuration management uh, um, uh tool of choice or whatever application you're using to take the uh, instructions you're giving and do some kind of execution, Um, you shouldn't really want to test that um, because hopefully the the application you've chosen has a a pretty solid test suite. Um, And then you have the signal out-processing, which is um, validating what came out the end, I think, to, to what Arthur was speaking to, is exactly what you wanted to have, right, the end state. Um, I think what's really important is just to make sure that you're testing the things that you... You or your or the people you work with um, are inflicting change on a system, um, and not so much trying to recreate things um, that may be validated elsewhere.
1: I think uh, one of the other things that's important to think about is that it's also giving us predictability. We're gonna, that we understand what these configuration changes are going to do when they get applied into our production realm, rather than doing exploratory testing, and it gives us confidence in being able to to deploy these things so the the thing is let's talk a little bit when we talk about being test driven. so for some people who might be not be familiar, especially if you're not coming from a development side or even if you are a little bit because not everyone does this, want to talk a little bit about what it means to be test driven uh, fundamentally i as my understanding and and you know panel jump in if if I'm getting this wrong. But I always think about test-driven development traditionally means this idea of, sometimes we talk about this idea called red-green refactor, which means we're going to write all of our tests first and they're all going to fail. And then we write code until the tests pass that's the green part. And then we refactor it, which means, okay, we wrote it well enough to get it to actually work. Now let's go back and make it pretty. So the challenge that I see with this when it comes to writing infra code, is I, I have found sometimes it's really hard to write all my tests first because of the dependencies that different pieces might have on each other, um, being able to get from one to the other. And I'd, I'd like to know in your experience if, if you actually, A, have had experience actually following a true test-driven approach to infra code, and if so, how do you approach that?
2: I guess maybe I'll jump in here. Uh, I, I think um, just a, a little nuance there for, for the test-driven uh, development definition. You don't necessarily write all of your tests first. You, you usually write one or two tests, and then short, and then you write the implementation code uh, right after. So. so I Uh, It's the same thing, and I agree, it'd be really hard to come up with all of the tests up front uh, for your test-driven infrastructure, but um, I I think if you break it up into small little chunks like, okay, uh, for this application to run, first I need to define a user uh, for that application to run as. So you might write a test that says, you know, make sure that this user and group exists, and then uh, you and then you write the uh, code to make it pass. And that would be kind of the cycle that you'd get into. Um, whether you write the tests first or you write the implementation code first. I mean, personally, I'm not, um, I'm not very religious. I think as long as the tests come uh, shortly after or uh, shortly before the implementation code, then you're golden. Yeah, and I think you
0: know you kind of identified two um, real um, use cases there because there's there's greenfield development where you've never built a thing before, and I think you you know Arthur Arthur's approach here is is spot on. You know, you can't test what you don't know, so you identify what you're going to work on. You write tasks, tests to validate what you. Would perceive as the outcome, um, and then you write tests against those, and that's great. And again, when you've when you're inventing something new, um, another approach that's quite quite interesting that I've seen some folks use is you know as you um, are coming into you know you have infrastructure right. It's not like your business just started. Um, you have infrastructure um, that needs to be validated, and maybe it hasn't even been automated yet. And people will use the test-driven infrastructure model, but what they'll do is they'll use production and write tests against production, saying, I know the state that I want it to be because I have a working copy, and use that as a blueprint to develop against while they write their automation code, which has been super successful for a lot of organizations that have the whole legacy systems that need to be migrated.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about that, and that was... Uh, I've definitely seen people be successful with that. And and again, speaking specifically around Chef, thinking about using audit mode, and actually, like Michael said, using your production as your test bed. So what you can do, if you write your, if you write your audit tests, which are you're saying, basically, this is what I know a compliant system should look like. So I'm going to write some audit cookbooks, which don't. And for those of you who haven't used audit mode before, an audit cookbook is a set of controls that simply says, if this is true, then the system is compliant. So I'm going to write my compliant. Basically, it's my compliance tests and I'm going to unleash them upon my infrastructure in audit only mode. So one thing, again, if you haven't used audit mode for in Chef, the Chef client has three flags for how it works. It can run with audit disabled, which is the default. It can run in audit enabled, which means it will run any convergent code, any recipes you have to actually with resources and put resources in state as well as run your audits. And then it can finally run an audit only, which means even if the run list of the node has convergence code, it won't do it. All it's going to do is run any audit controls that are in the run list. So what you do in this case is sit there and you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and write controls that say what I think a machine should look like. And I'm going to run chef, client, and audit-only mode on my production infrastructure. And what this is letting me do is actually truly be, like Michael said, test-driven, because what this is going to let me do is determine, first of all, which of my machines out there in my fleet migration that's happening are actually not compliant. So I know that I need to write some chef code to actually make them be compliant, but it also lets me determine... What's going to be the impact of doing that? Because if we sat down and said, well, I know what I think these machines should look like, I'm going to write Chef code to converge in that way, and I'm going to unleash it on my 10,000 nodes. And then I determined that I actually broke 9,000 of them because there's 9,000 snowflakes out there that I didn't know about. And I didn't know these particular idiosyncrasies. Whereas if I start with audit, which is basically just a test, I can then say, okay, well, on these particular machines, this resource is not the way I expect it. Now I can do some investigation with the owner of the system or the owner of the application that's involved and determine what might actually be the reason it's that way because maybe my understanding is incomplete and or at the minimum I can know that I definitely need to test it against a configuration that looks like that before I roll that out so I think that's a really powerful way to do test driven infrastructure again it sounds silly but you're treating your production as your test environment but it's not where you're testing what the change will, you're not rolling out the change and testing it, you're you letting Letting that generate what you need to do. It's driving your code change.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, Matt, to your point, just to, I mean, we talked about audit mode, which I think the name itself is a little misleading. I know the original intent of audit, right, what it's behind. But there's other tools, the frameworks just to be, try to be a little agnostic here, right? You can do the same with server spec, with Leibniz, with some other things that are out there, open source. But um, I think... uh, I think the real key here is, you know, Matt. To your point, you have a known good or a state, a system that is known good, and you write some sort of validation checks against that, and use that to drive your tester.
2: And it's a, it's a really good uh, uh, pattern for sure. And I, I, mean, I, I guess with audit mode, that's really uh, Matt's idea there of of writing all the tests ahead of time, and you can. I think it's the same thing uh, when you're trying to refactor a legacy system and touching a legacy system that has no test is terrifying. And so you really want to write some tests first to check usually an out in approach. So you write some integration tests, saying, hey, okay, the system's still in a good state. And then you start to, as you're drilling into the class or whatever it is that you're trying to refactor, you want to have some tests to tell you, OK, what does it do today? And then how can I either check? or if you're doing a big rewrite. And I guess in some sense with audit mode, you're essentially rewriting what's a manual system of server with a configuration management system like Chef. So that's definitely a really powerful tool.
1: The the other thing is I, I'd like to think about so we can we can take this again talking a little bit about I'd like to talk a little bit about 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 the how do I do this We already talked about the how I can approach it from kind of a global looking at my whole infrastructure, but if I'm looking at it and saying okay, so I am I want to write some some infra code and and we may again use some some chef specific terms here, but I think the approach is similar. But I want to talk about I actually want to specifically talk about how to so. And I think for each of us, maybe we can kind of share our approach that if as a cookbook developer, what are the tools of the trade and the process that you follow to say, how am I going to test my infracode and and an approach that I'm, I'm writing a brand new cookbook maybe? You know, it's a new thing. And I want to make sure that I've got I hate to I, I shudder at saying that I've got test coverage because that's a whole other ball of wax. We could unwind. But uh, thinking about the, the steps that I go through. So I'll, I'll you know, kind of turn it over to, to Arthur first to kind of walk us through your workflow. And then Michael and I can follow on and either nod our heads in vehement agreement or, you know, add on our, our own thoughts as well.
2: I guess to be a bit chef-specific, uh, the first thing that we use with any new cookbook is the uh, Chef Generate, and we have a custom generator template that we use. But anyway, we, we try to we try to be very um, prescriptive into it with how you write, really push writing tests. So really, right from the get-go, the minute you generate your cookbook, there's already uh, test stubs, and all of the configuration for Test Kitchen. So te- we use Test Kitchen heavily. Uh, that's that's a tool from Fletcher Nickel uh, and really lets you test your cookbook or it, it actually has um, plugins for any configuration management system out there. It lets you test those cookbooks locally on your workstation. So the first thing that we'll usually do uh, is s- potentially either start with the test or start right away with the implementation code and write the test shortly after. And we just iterate uh, with our Test Kitchen builds, running them locally. So we use Test Kitchen with server spec. So we write our tests in server spec today, and eventually I think we'll, we will be switching to audit mode. Uh, but server spec really gives you this kind of English-like syntax uh, to check the state of the system. So you say, you know, you expect a file to be here, and its content should be this regular expression. And that's pretty much exactly what I said, is is the way that you write this uh, server spec code. And then we, we really use um, kitchen docker a lot. So uh, get that fast feedback which as a software developer I really wants to be able to run tests that execute in under a minute under two minutes uh, and if the feedback's longer than that it's kind of painful so I found that with the regular with the default test kitchen vagrant approach uh, destroying and recreating the machine really takes a long time you, you really get hit with the with the vagrant initialization and startup Really, uh, Kitchen Docker has saved our bacon a bunch um, by by really making tests super fast. And we can always start with a clean slate, with a destroy, and then a uh, verify run again. And so once we finish uh, writing our tests, this is actually another piece that we could probably talk about for another long time. Uh, we follow a very developer-centric workflow of using... Um, branch-based development. So somebody sits there, creates uh, the cookbook with the tests and the implementation code, pushes that up as a branch, and then somebody code reviews that. We have automated builds that start to run. So again, we can get into... And once uh, it's fully reviewed, we merge it in and uh, it gets usually automatically deployed uh, to to production. Uh, Yeah, so... That's pretty close to what
0: you know I've, I've done for a while and what we recommend for customers. I, I, I'll say something uh, a little provocative here. Um, uh, I don't actually destroy my test kitchen instances until I feel like I need to do a clean run. And you know that's, that's probably going to anger some TDI purists um but uh, I find to, to Arthur's point right you don't when you're trying to do development you don't want to wait for um, uh, kind of spinning up new instances or even new containers right like building building from scratch over and over again even if you have a, a container to use as your as your image can so, can sometimes take a little while depending on how complex of a, of a uh, uh, some configuration code uh, you have to work on is. Um, so, but what I also always find is um, at a certain points, I'll make a judgment to rebuild um, and from scratch to make sure that I can a rebuild and um, I can run it again and that nothing changes. Right. So I don't have any um, test and repair loops where I'm constantly making a change because I don't have um I don't have any kind of... uh, um uh, item potent, um, logic in place. Um, but I think, you know, to, to Arthur's point, you know, using, uh, I use test kitchen, um, depending on what I'm trying to do, I'll do kitchen Docker or kitchen EC2 or kitchen DigitalOcean um, or even kitchen joint, right? So like a bunch of different providers. Um, uh, but I will say that, um, for me, I test as I go. So I write one test, I write the code, then I write another test and then I write the code instead of Trying to write the whole suite ahead of time, um, but uh, but yeah. So I think um, I think the key thing that I would add on to this is that we have talking about local developer works to, workflows for testing, um, and I think uh, people get a little scared, maybe uh, confused, when they start to automate that into maybe a continuous integration pipeline. Um, and really, it's it's. It's a little it's a little bit more complex, but it's about as simple as you think. If you can do it locally, you automate it with robots on your CI pipeline. Um, and try to stay as close as possible. Don't add in new things that you didn't do locally. And if you if you have to, try to figure out how to make them uh, how to have those
1: tests and testing frameworks being utilized locally as well. So I just have so a couple things to add to that. So one is I've gotten into the habit of instead of referring to it as local development, referring to it as individual development. Because local development definitely implies that I'm doing all this running kitchen locally, like on my actual laptop. And it may make more sense for me to be doing this in my organization to say, we have VM workstations that everybody uses because I know that then that way they all have the same version of Chef DK, They're all configured the same way. Or even sometimes local development implies local virtualization. And I could still be using maybe something like Kitchen EC2 or... Or, you know, a VMware driver for Kitchen or Hyper-V to actually spin those instances up. So I don't need all of the you know, these resources on my laptop to be able to do that. So, and the other reason I like calling it individual development is it really kinds, like thinks about how that workflow works, that now I'm working as an individual before I move into collaborative development into my pipeline. One thing too, and I'll put a link in the show notes to this is, uh, so Sasha Bates gave a talk at at, uh, ChefConf 2013 called How to F Up Your Configuration Management Adoption. And she talks about a lot of mud pies she made. But one of the things in there that she talks about is how when she's testing, and this goes back to a little bit with Michael's thing about how he doesn't do destroys. and Because I think if you do a destroy every time, that's not necessarily a full test either because you're not necessarily building new machines every time. So Sasha's point is she's like, I run it against the existing uh, new machine, then I run it again, then I run it again, then I destroy the VM, then I run it again, then I run it again. Because you want to be testing for item potency, you want to make sure you understand how it works against a VM that already has some configuration on it. So I think that's an, an important piece. And Uh, Just talking a little bit more about some tools that should be part, again, to to echo Michael's point that whatever you're doing, I think it goes both ways. Whatever you're doing in your test suite that's happening in your automated pipeline, you should be having that happen in individual development. But you also should be having whatever tests you consider things that you test for individually should be repeated in your, your pipeline. And to a lot of people, sometimes that feels really redundant because it's like, oh, hey, I already know that I ran, you know, Food Critic. So why am I bothering to do that in the pipeline? And it's for two reasons. One is trust, but verify, right? You know, you want to make sure, you know, I don't always trust myself to run all my individual tests. And then also a matter of because my code, baby, once it gets into a collaborative development, it may be now merged with somebody else's code. And I want to be able to run those, those tests as well. And that's a a core precept in chef delivery of how that actually works with our different phases that it goes through in the different stages that it goes through to be able to do that. What about performance? So what is where does performance come into play? And that's kind of an open ended question, but I, I just gonna kind of ask it that way. How does performance come into play in test driven infrastructure?
0: Um, So, yeah, this is Mike, I'll go first. Um, I think performance is really impacted on, I think there's two aspects. There's um, what amount of infrastructure are you willing to put into making your testing environment look as close to production as possible? Um, uh, And I would argue with someone who doesn't have to worry about an ongoing maintenance budget for an environment, you want to make it as Close to production. So, if you have 15 systems in production, you should have a 15 system uh, cluster and test. Um, from so, from a performance perspective, right? You want to do that. But I, you know, I also live in the land of reality. So sometimes you can't do that. So I think the goal that people should strive for on that aspect is as close to production as possible. Um, but I think in the in the individual or isolated development. Um, uh, perspective um you are going to want to try to give as much uh um uh battery power as possible to your isolated development also looking um, as close to your production environment uh, as possible. This may mean having multiple Docker containers or multiple uh, images running locally on your system, and that can be kind of a resource hog. Um, But again, if you are validating on small chunks, you can kind of reduce the footprint need um, for what you're actually spinning up to test locally.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think the performance... So, there's really a difference between unit tests and integration tests, right, from the software development world. Unit tests are really things that execute in memory, they execute really quickly, and then there's kind of your integration, and then I guess end-to-end is probably the slowest ones, where, say, you're opening up a browser and poking around, and... and, um, Testing your application that way. So, from the software development world, we really run into uh, performance issues if you lean really on the end-to-end browser-based tests, and uh, that can really get you into multi-hour-long test test runs. So. In some sense, I I think um, maybe to to Michael's signal in, signal out uh, analogy, if you have a lot of the signal out tests and you're spending a lot of time uh, setting up, say, a gigantic infrastructure, you really can get into a lot of performance pain. So uh, one of the cookbooks we have sets up uh, the ELK stack, the Elasticsearch Logstash and Cabana stack, and we actually test all of that locally with Docker in a uh, multi-Docker environment. And and those tests really do take a long time. Like we're talking about 20, 30 minutes for getting some feedback on a change that you made. So, you know, performance, especially from the infrastructure side, uh, you don't really have too much to play with aside from beefing up your machine uh, or beefing up the test environments like Michael alluded to, uh, to really get that feedback to come back faster.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that that people when you start talking about doing test driven infrastructure, they see that the whole process makes everything feel like it's slower. And that can be from the perspective of you have more things to do right you're like i just want to write some code i don't want to have to test it i don't want to have to wait and go through these iterations and and all these pieces and one of the things to that is just a matter of the reality is in the in the gestalt right like while it may feel like you're like it's making things slower the reality is in practice it's it's making you be able to move with greater velocity because you have more confidence in those changes, and you're not having to go and say, oh, I rolled out this cookbook, and oh, crap, it broke something, so I now need to really quick write some remediation to fix the thing that I just broke. So making things safer in and, and the overall makes it faster. One of the other things I've seen is that people talk about... All the work that's involved in writing a test, especially for infra code, because you, you ha- might have to write some really complicated stuff to be able to determine the state. And what what I found often too is that actually it makes your development faster because you've probably figured out a lot of the logic simply by writing the tests. There's an addition to test driven development. There's there's another idea that people have written or talked about called readme driven development, which I think is interesting. Where you write would write the documentation for your cookbook before you do anything, and the funny thing is, when I think about how I apply cookbook development, that is how I do it. I don't write the README. But when we think about, you know, when I'm helping customers figure out, you know, go through a POC or learning how to do it, the approach is we say, okay, first figure out what that desired state of your infrastructure is. And I said, and write that down. And that's actually in a lot of ways your README. And then the next thing that you do is you determine the resources needed to put it in that state. So you really, and then you can write tests to say, is this resource in the state that it's in? But I think that's really the hardest part is it's like you have to, it's, it's sort of like my thing when I was in school and I never wanted to write outlines for my my papers. I just wanted to start writing, and that's actually how I always write. Uh, but it it's tough to write infra code that way. You don't just start and sit, you know, do chef generate cookbook, fire up your default RB in your recipes folder, and just start hacking. You have to have a plan. And if you have a plan, the test will come out naturally. And all of that kind of pre-work makes the writing of the code actually much faster and much easier, I believe. Yeah, Matt,
0: um, actually, you said two things that I kind of wanted to jump in on, which was, you know, the some people complain about it takes so much time to write to write a test, right? Um, and I always that just that kind of like grates on my nerves a little bit because, you know, how much time do you spend on an incident bridge, right? When the the thing is broken, and I guarantee you, it's probably going to be longer than the time it took you to write a proper test for your infrastructure code. And so, I get it. It's tough. You're trying to do some work and you want to get a change out fast, but you really are trying to. Uh, um,
2: to protect yourself from that safety, I I, and I, I guess sorry just to to, to build on Math, Michael's point, uh, how much time do you spend SSHing into the system after you've converged it or, or run your uh, playbooks or whatever to see hey did this did this actually work yeah oh yeah it's okay okay yeah that's that's okay um, and, and then you're gonna do that for the other hundred systems that you run on, right? So, in some sense, um, uh, l- like you were saying, you're saving you're saving a bunch of time. You're paying it forward ahead of time by writing those tests. But then again, it pays you forward uh, later on when you roll out the changes.
0: Yeah, and I think you know another thing that can kind of help with the. Um Uh, you know, it takes so long, right, Um, is, you know, the the other thing is the the, the image that you use to validate the change can change, right? Like, there's no one saying that you have to build from scratch every single time. I think this goes with with every, for everything, right? I mean, um, if you have, if you have infrastructure code that, that, uh, defines the policy, and you're, and that's well tested, and it's available. Then there's no reason to just execute it again to get more green lines in your output at the end of your test kitchen run. If you really want to, to kind of short circuit and and really focus in, you could, you know, add another layer to your Docker container that has like the all of the other. 15 steps you've already completed, con- done, or um, you know, bake a new image um, that has a lot of the initial uh, configuration done, but you're still running cookbooks against it.
2: Oh, right. So a real world example uh, of this that we actually have, um, we, we've been rolling out uh, Sensu uh, as a monitoring uh, service. And we really want people to write checks really quickly. <laughs> And you really don't want to sit there on your workstation waiting for the entire Sensu uh, infrastructure to configure in, inside of a Docker container. So really, some some of the devs uh, built, uh, like Michael suggested, uh, a docker image that already has Sensu inside of it and so if you want to write checks you just spin that up Sensu's already there and then you write some checks against it so it, it's really it's it's really power you can really sit down and hash out those performance issues and really solve them and give you faster feedback because at the end of the day with testing just like in software development you want that fast feedback
1: i want to uh just The next question, just as a thing kind of to, to wrap up, is what are what really gaps do you see in the approaches to test-driven infrastructure, whether they be in tooling or in practice or things that you think that we as a community could be doing better in order to be able to have uh, better predictability? What, where, where are the gaps? You know, the gaps that I see are a lot of times people being too purist and trying to
0: apply decades of software development experience and TDD approaches, which, to be fair, are Kind of in debate, anyways, um, to a group of people that is that that may be new to testing uh, infrastructure code, um, and being a little bit too draconic, right? Um, and letting people um, learn those uh, lessons uh, similar to the way I'd say that's a gap because I think I think sometimes we we feel that we can. Teach people, or let people avoid the, the things that actually taught us in the first place, as relates to testing. Um, uh, so that I would say that's a people gap. From a technology gap, I think we still don't have a good fleet-wide validation mechanism. Right? Um, you have tools that allow you to validate one system. You have tools that let you validate like um, the output of a web page, which I guess is technically fleet. Uh, wide validation, but um, we don't really have anything that you know. You spin up a, a, a an app, a web, and a database system, and you can validate all three of them or have the configurations that you're expecting. Um, uh, at the same time, after having the whole thing managed as infrastructure as code, um, there's been talk about trying to do that uh, to some extent. But you know, I don't, I don't really think that that's out there. I think that's the 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 big story that most people want to get to um, as they ev- evolve their infrastructure testing.
2: So, so I think um, w- one of the ones that I've definitely experienced is the multi-node. Uh, cookbook testing, right? So when you're trying to stand up, uh, an entire infrastructure that consists of uh, several different components that all talk to each other. Um, what we've done is we have them talking to each other on local host in one Docker container, but that really doesn't represent the real state of the system. And again, this might just be something that we're not doing well, but um, it's not. I haven't seen it talked, up, talked a lot about uh, and really how people spin up a cluster of machines test the BGGs out of them, and then tear them down. So that's probably the biggest gap that I've seen so far. And then at the end of the day, it's really, uh, we touched on performance, it's how to get that performance and that feedback cycle uh, as fast as possible, and kind of ways to optimize that. So.
1: So thanks for that. So let's go ahead and move into checkouts. So why don't you, Arthur, do you have anything you would like our audience to check out?
2: Sure, Matt. Um, I guess I I splurged a little bit on the checkout, so I can go uh, pretty quickly. I'll take your
1: time, because I actually couldn't think of anything this week. So the checkouts are all about you, so you are...
2: You've got full reign here. Sweet. All right. So um, I guess from the technical picks perspective, um, I'll pick a book, uh, Mux Productive Mouse-Free Development. So I read this book a couple of years back now, and it was really uh, the way that I have dove into using Tmux on a regular basis for just about everything I do. And uh, uh as a gem that, that makes using Tmux uh, Joy. Uh, So check that out. Uh, If you're old school, then Screen is probably the Tmux equivalent you've heard of. Uh, so to, to check out that book it's really short it's a, a hundred pages or so and really dives you into how to use Tmux effectively uh, the other one I'd like to pick a uh, technical pick would be private supermarket so here here at uh, OTPP we set up a private supermarket a few months back and we've been loving it it's really uh, it's really actually opened up chef developments to more than just the people who have the keys to the chef server uh, because now we can share share cookbooks in an open fashion within the organization. So private chef as set up through the omnibus supermarket cookbook really makes it a breeze uh, to set up private chef, uh, private supermarket within your organization. And uh, from a non-technical pick, uh, I wanted to pick the Headspace uh, meditation app. So this is at headspace.com. It's uh, I've Got into meditation a few months ago now, and this was—I mean, it, it might sound a bit cliche, but uh, in the app era or whatever you want to call it, there's an app for everything, and one of them is meditation, and probably uh, meditation gurus are are you know, uh, throwing up in their mouth or something. But, uh, this is, this has been the way that I got into it and I found it really fantastic. It's run by, um, Andy Hunt, I think his his name is the, he did a Ted talk on meditation and he runs this application and and this company and they just do fantastic work. Uh, it's really helped me in a lot of ways to kind of de-stress and actually sleep better. That was, that was a big one for me. Um, and, and just, there's lots of different uh different meditations for different circumstances in life and uh finally i, I guess i'll pick uh my favorite wheat beer. So I'm a big fan of wheat beers. And uh, my favorite one is Pölner. It's a Munich wheat beer. Uh, it's just fantastic. Uh, it's kind of hard to find, to be honest, uh, especially here. I live in uh, Ontario, Canada, where we have uh, a giant monopoly that sells all all of the liquor. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to find, but hey, you know what? It's awesome. And I guess uh, one last quick one is if you want to work off off that beer, I've started to do uh, weightlifting recently. I've always done um, car- cardio, intense cardio, and weightlifting actually turns out to be a really great cardio exercise. And uh, I have a great guy teaching me how to how to do that well. So.
1: Great actually it's funny that you mentioned that I actually need to get back into the gym again I was I've kind of fallen off the wagon but one of the, the things again you know when it comes to you know lifting is great and doing those kind of exercises one that a trainer I was working with I don't know if at your gym they have something called battle ropes or as my <laughs> trainer called them the shoelaces of death but they're those big heavy ropes and you can do a lot of exercises where you fling them up and down and they just kill you uh, but they're really good for strength and cardio and gets your heart rate really up there but you know, it's a strength exercise as well. Uh, so I lied. I actually have two quick checkouts. So one is I wanted to, first of all, echo Arthur's point. So that t book, and that's by um, uh, Pragmatic Press, I think. We'll put a link in the show notes. I've read that book as well. It really turned me on to t and understanding it. And I was using T-Muxinator at first based upon that book, but I've changed to, I use a tool now called t And I'm not quite sure exactly why I like it better than T-Muxinator, besides the fact that it, it's a an Arrested Development reference. But it works out really nicely to be able to define my, just like Tmuxinator, you define your spaces in YAML. And I think maybe it just, for some reason, was echoed with me a little clearer on the configuration of them. But it's really nice so I can sit down and say I have a whole thing I'm working on for a particular cookbook, maybe, and it'll fire up all the different panes and have one that's got, you know, Vim ready to go. Another one, I actually can even have it go and fire up Atom to open the cookbook in Atom, where if I want to edit it there, have Kitchen ready to run, have Git running over on the other one. And then the One which is a little bit of uh, I I may have mentioned this on the show before, I don't remember, but there is so Telltale Games, uh, they've done a really great game about The Walking Dead, but they also uh, are in process of a game around Game of Thrones, it's a very interactive storytelling game. Uh, that I just realized I think there's another episode for me to download and I'll, I'll be playing that. So I don't know if there's Android tablet versions of this there might be if i find them i'll put a link in the show notes we'll definitely put a link in the show notes for the ios or the ipad version of it but it's really fun if you're into game of thrones it's a really fun uh, multiple branching story kind of thing so <clears throat> thanks for joining us arthur hope you uh, enjoyed being on the show we certainly enjoyed having you
2: thank you so much trevor this was awesome
1: great Awesome. My name oh, is Matt. It's
2: Matt. Oh, it's the it's the application. It says Trevor. Yeah.
1: Yes. yes our, our recording app makes me look like I'm Trevor. At least in the in the oh, recording. So, so. Fail. Oh, it's okay. All right. And on that note, we're out. Oh, an interesting thing that happened was when we initially recorded our interview with Arthur and with Michael, that was about 12 hours before Chef Software released a whole bunch of new products that uh, can be used to really enhance your test-driven infrastructure workflow. And we weren't able to talk about it in the initial interview, but Michael and I wanted to add a couple things to share with you about these features that we announced Um Especially around things like uh, what we call Chef Compliance and a couple other tools, so we're going to go ahead and, and talk about that stuff really quickly and give you some resources to learn a little bit more. Uh, one of the things that was released is a, a new product called Chef Compliance. We want to talk a little bit about uh, what what that's what that's all about. So, so Michael, what do you think when we think about Chef Compliance? What's that all about?
0: Yeah. So what's interesting is when people
1: talk about compliance, um,
0: they, they're usually, it's because they've been impacted by having to do some kind of audit. Right. And so when, uh, when people first started doing some server spec tests and then we had the audit feature that came through, uh, it was very much in response to, um, you know, how can I make security or compliance officers happy that this automation that I'm doing is actually compliant with, you know, PCI or SOX or, um, uh, You know, Stig or CIS uh, benchmarks, Um, and for those of you that actually like dove into or have the security or compliance background, you know you'll know that what you're doing is taking like this doc. Right? and translating into you know, root user must not be zero. Right. So what's the check to validate that? Um, and so when I think about Chef Compliance, I think about how do we actually bring security and compliance folks into an automated world um, so it's not just DevOps, right? It's everybody kind of moving along with the automation and validation of the changes going
1: through infrastructure. Totally, and and I think that's one of the challenges when we think about compliance is you've got a bunch of different actors that that care about setting compliance. Or the cha- you know think about the challenge of audit, right? You've got your compliance group, your compliance officers, and they care about a lot of things like process compliance and running audits and patch level. And you've got your security folks who are caring about you know that your systems match to security policies. They're doing things like pen tests, doing system verification, and your ops folks are. You know, they're doing monitoring and logging, they're rolling out apps, they're applying patches. And when we kind of think about the the tooling that we're all using to do that, your compliance folks, you know, their stack is PDF and Excel, right? You know, so they're writing policies in PDF form and PDFs that they're being shared. They're keeping track of things in Excel. It's a lot of human words, right? Your security folks are writing, you know, using shell scripts or pen, penetration penetration tools or security tools, and then your ops folks are do you know using maybe some other testing frameworks or. Or things like chef. And then what you don't have, just like you said, we don't really have a, a common language. And so that was one of the things we really wanted to look at with you know chef compliance was thinking about like how can we have a common language so that we're not translating, you know, we're using a common set of tools to to meet all of those of those pieces. And so when we think about how compliance lets us do this idea of this idea of continuous audit, so we're we've talked about before, right? Security and compliance are just another aspect of quality. They're baked into our workflow. And one of the things about Chef compliance, the tool, is it doesn't actually require um, Chef client to be running on the nodes that you're testing, right? So it lets us test for against our compliance on our existing systems and use that same compliance during our. You know, uh, creation of our infrastructure, and our apps through our through our pipeline. Now, what one of the other things that that was like I said, we released a whole bunch of stuff, and one of the the key things, in addition to the Chef compliance tool itself, we released some open source items, and one of them was something called Inspec, which is really uh, it's a testing framework that's built on, it's, you know, kind of heavily influenced by by server spec, for example, but it's, and so in spec, you know, as we have seen it, uh, we've referred to it as both meaning like uh, infrastructure spec or um, and it's really giving you kind of this idea of being able to have built-in compliance so you're not existing at the end of the release cycle. And But it's a big part of it is it's including metadata that's required by security and compliance pros, right? So we're bringing in things like, how important is this particular compliance test? Um, and we can both run these tests at, at a command line or they can be baked into our testing cycle because another thing that we released was Kitchen InSpec. So you can use you can run InSpec tests directly in Kitchen and in fact, it doesn't even depend upon busser. So it's a, it's a really nice, nice piece of that. And then the last bit of open source stuff that got released was something called Train, which is leveraged by InSpec and, and some of these other and other pieces. And that's like this abstraction for being able to talk to local or remote instances in a unified manner. So it supports SSH or WinRM or Docker or Mock. And it's letting me just sort of say you know, run this command or connect to this machine. And I don't really, I can abstract away whether it's via SSH or via WinRM or whatnot. And the other thing that's happening in Inspect that's really cool. To me, that I think is really cool is that you're able to kind of create these custom resources that are abstractions. So instead of writing a test that says, "Let me, you know, write a regular expression to make sure that this particular SSHD config file contains this string," because if I'm the compliance officer, I don't necessarily know that level of. I may not want to get that deep into it. I just want to be able to say that my SSH config file, whatever that happens to be, or the thing that's in charge of SSH config. It's key value pair matches to this, right? This particular parameter is indeed set. And it gives, again, there's no problem in computer science that can't be solved without a sufficient layer of abstraction. Uh, It's just making it a lot more accessible to write these common things that are translating the human requirements into something that's expressed as an outcome, is what I see. What I see with that. Um, what have and I don't know. I like. I haven't had a whole lot of time to a chance to really play with this a lot. Other than I mean, I've done a lot of stuff with. Playing around with Chef compliance, I haven't written a lot of Inspect yet. Um, I don't know, Michael. I don't know what, what have you kind of just what has been your 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 gut feel on this? I know this is all a lot of really new stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I when Audit first came out, I was super excited about it. I think it was was it, it started to solve a need. I think the the benefit from Inspect is is that it adds this metadata layer. Which is super critical information when dealing with compliance, right? When you, when you, you do talk about traditional compliance checks, right? So, uh, like security validation, um, or uh, you know specific regulation compliance, um, they have severity levels, right? And sometimes you can fail a compliance check, and that's okay, right? Like, that is not going to block you from release. And one of the things that was uh, difficult was to really get an understanding of, like, what's the criticality of this compliance failure? And so I think one of the greatest things about the inspect. Uh, pieces all the metadata that it adds and it's not locked into some arbitrary you know low medium high right you can make the levels as you need them to be right um, and I think what the the general flexibility of it is is great in that just thinking about you know a compliance check is just a test right we talked about test driven infrastructure and what does that actually mean anytime you're writing a test you are checking for some sort of compliance it may not be a standard reg, but you have you want to make sure the thing that you are doing is compliant with your expectation. So you can kind of leverage this and create profiles for all kinds of things that aren't specific to compliance. So that's, for me, playing around with Inspect so far has really been awesome. It's based on uh, Ruby. It is very similar to the ServerSpec DSL. Um, uh, and it's very um, behavioral ri- behaviorally written, right? So you can read the checks as opposed to, having to have for loops with all kinds of complexity in there. Um, and then the last little bit about Inspect that I think is really good and it meshes really well with you know Chef's general philosophy is if we don't have the thing you need, you can totally build your own thing. So um, it has its own ability to create custom resources just like you can do within Chef. So um, uh, overall, I'm super happy with it. I've played around with it for a little bit. Uh, I've tried to translate a CIS benchmark um, uh, in uh, for Red Hat, um, and that went over pretty well. Um, uh, I'm kind of excited to see what kind of profiles people start creating and publishing out to the
1: um,
0: out to the community.
1: Another thing that Inspect has into it uh, is when you're writing these Inspect rules, you can create descriptions, and that when you build that into Chef compliance, where that's really powerful is. That when I see that something failed, it's providing the context and description and explanation as to why and even including how to resolve it. So if we think about the way this works in your workflow is you start by having by running your compliance scans against your machines to see if they're compliant according to what you've defined. And then when they're not, you then go into the workflow of your kind of local or individual development, like we said, using you know, Chef DK to write your remediation. <laughs> and then again being able to leverage those same inspect tests using kitchen inspect to make sure that you've resolved them move that stuff through something like chef delivery to be able to ensure that it's that these changes that you're integrating are integrating well with your other infra code and then letting chef server deploy them appropriately for the actual remediation and then wrapping something like chef analytics around it to ensure that those nodes are now actually continue to be compliant so it's really about it also the whole workflow right like these all these things like chef compliance delivery analytics inspect they all work together to give you really what the important thing is because again it's not about the tool it's about how you're doing work so it's giving you a workflow and an approach to say i really am i'm test driven or i'm compliance driven i'm outcome driven right? Are my things the way that they're supposed to be? Is the outcome of my systems the way that is dictated according to the policy of my organization? And it's also providing that ability for the people responsible for those systems to be able to remediate them because maybe they're getting alerted by Chef Analytics with the context of the rule that says, here's how to actually fix it. So they can go in and do their own remediation through Chef and push it through your proper pipeline with all your right approvals and governance. So that's really, I think, I think the approach we're taking with this is creating all these building blocks, which are awesome, but then t- also tying it into a workflow that's usable. And, and and that's that's what's giving you, rather than just a lot of pieces, giving a way to actually be successful with that. So it's exciting stuff. And I, I think it's, it's giving us that ability... When we think about our infrastructure and our systems and how they interrelate, and especially being able to be collaborative about that, right? You know, everyone has their piece that comes into their area of responsibility and and what and of expertise, right? I'm the compliance person. I have the expertise of knowing what things should look like, and I can, again, communicate that in a reproducible, consumable way. Yeah, I think one thing we
0: didn't talk about, too, is the remote execution uh, uh, aspect of the compliance uh, thing. So, um, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about Chef products, right, and how it ties into the workflow, and it's super exciting. Um, But there is an aspect of being able to run in-spec validations um, uh, via remote execution, which is why train comes in um, against your systems, right? So um, speaking back to kind of what I talked about earlier, about you know, folks working through TDI, like trying to get to test-driven infrastructure and that approach for you know existing systems and how do you start migrating them to be managed by infrastructure code? You know, Chef compliance is, is a, it seems to be, from what I've spun up and, and played with it so far, is has been very much like a super easy way to just go and here write some in the inspect tests and you know validate them against you know your existing infrastructure and then you get a nice report. That says, here's all the things that are out and the critical, um, the criticality of whatever
1: it is and the descriptions that, that, that Matt was saying earlier. And again, some of the questions that have, have come up is, you know, InSpec is, and just like Kitchen, are not necessarily Chef only. You know, InSpec is a, a framework and a tool that you can use, just like you said, for forever that might come into for, for testing your infrastructure code in this really expressive way. So it's, you know, obviously, you know, Chef built it as a building block for a larger workflow that we wanted to do for Chef. But it's an open source product and it works independently of that. So it's, it's something we're sharing with the community and, and hoping that the community is going to help us make it even better and better. So, I mean, hopefully this gave some, some, some context and color around some of the new things that are happening around test-driven infrastructure, especially in the Chef world. Uh, it doesn't really necessarily replace. Um, it just enhances the things we talked about uh, earlier in this episode as, as well and just gives even more tools in your toolkit around that. Yeah, I think this is
0: this has been an awesome uh, discussion, and um, I just encourage everyone when they think about test driven infrastructure um, to to keep an open mind about what you're actually testing, when you're testing, and and why you're you're testing
1: the things uh, and your infrastructure. This was a great conversation. And don't forget, in addition to great conversation, we have a newsletter as well, which you can sign up for at ArrestedDevOps.com banana stand. It's the best way to know about our upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. We'd love to thank our great sponsors. Please be sure to visit them at ArrestedDevOps.com slash magnitude and ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog. Thanks to Arthur and Michael for joining me tonight. And loyal listeners, if you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we'd appreciate it if you would visit arrested com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store. We would love to know what you thought of this episode. Please leave us comments or feedback at ArrestedDevOps.com slash TDI. Also, want to give uh, some attribution to the music you heard during this episode. Came from uh, Ben Sound, which you can check out at bensound.com and is distributed under a Creative Commons license. You can check us out at arresteddevops.com or on Twitter at arresteddevops. We're always happy to get your input ideas, or feedback at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com if you like that email thing, and let us know any ideas you might have for future episodes. I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. This is Arrested DevOps, and remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand.